calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello and welcome to Guiding Assets, the flagship investment podcast for CFA Institute. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and today we're going to talk crypto. I hesitate to speculate on where the cryptocurrencies will be trading in January when this goes to air. We're recording today in mid-December, and Ethereum and Bitcoin are up around 40 to 50% from their recent lows. Uh, but while the volatility of these instruments is called interesting, we're going to spend some time today trying to go OG. We're looking at how players may be able to apply traditional valuation techniques to try to triangulate in on a defensible value for them. Joining me today from London is Olivier Fine, CFA, CFA Institute's Head of Advocacy and Capital Markets Policy Research for EMEA, who will talk us through the recent findings of an institute paper on the topic, Valuation of Crypto Assets, a Guide for Investment Professionals. Olivier joined CFA Institute in 2019 after 15 years in investment management, most recently as Head of Risk and Compliance at Rothschild & Co. in London for the Private Equity and Debt Division. Uh, welcome to the show, Olivier. Hello, Mike. Pleasure to be here. Now, Olivier, I'd, I'd like to start with the history of CFA Institute's engagement with this marketplace because it, it has evolved over time. And in, maybe in telling that story, maybe get us to today and what this report is is and is not trying to do. You're absolutely right, Mike, that CFA Institute's journey through the treacherous waters of the uh, the crypto universe hasn't exactly been a uh, walk in the park. In fact, as recently as probably two years ago, the Institute still considered crypto fringe, niche, the stuff of uh, geeks, probably focused on transfer and payments, at least the banking infrastructure, but certainly not investment material. It took us a while to recognize that, in fact, our initial original appreciation of what crypto was, was probably incorrect. And we had to reckon with the fact that crypto had started to pervade the world of capital markets in general, but investments in particular, in a quite new manner when you compare that to historically how finance has developed, right? So... Crypto was very much a bottom-up development, uh, one that has um, penetrated the world of investments through retail, through individuals, as opposed through to a top-down development through institutions. That has caught most of traditional institutions, commentators, but also regulators off guard. And we released, on the face of this development, uh, we released our first original piece on crypto uh, at just at the beginning of 2023, when the idea has been to essentially provide a point of view on this development that we wanted to be as unbiased as possible. That is beyond the hype piece, indeed, that we released in, in January of 2023 from the point of view of investors 
and which was the result of a series of practical discussions with technologists, uh, regulators, lawyers, asset owners, uh, investment practitioners. And from that report, we extracted or we essentially zeroed in on three major issues, one of which was valuation, which is the reason why we are having this discussion today. Another one was the problem of custody and safekeeping of client assets. And the third major issue was that related to fiduciary duty, which is how can a investment professional justify investing in crypto on behalf of their client if they don't understand this new universe, perhaps new asset class, well enough. So from that original report, we then ventured into crypto in a staggered manner, looking at issues one at a time. Uh, we looked into central bank digital currencies. We are now looking into the problem of valuation, which is the report that we have just released. And the next installment of this cluster of work will be dedicated to the concept of tokenization. So one of the aspects we've explored on the show over the past couple of years is the existence of multiple business models that exist within the crypto ecosystem beyond just pure plays on currency. So in the report, you go into three different spheres within that ecosystem, smart contract platforms, decentralized platforms like DeFi, de decentralized finance, and then you look at four different ways to value Bitcoin. So I was hoping that we could talk through each of these categories today. And maybe you could start us off with the report's findings on how, how to value smart contract platform players. So, so that's a, a, a very important point, uh, which relates to the concept of the taxonomy of the world of crypto assets. It has been essentially a jargonized world to refer to crypto as meaning anything from Bitcoin to Ethereum to smart contract blockchain, when in fact, those different, different layers of digital finance each have different characteristics which need to be analyzed um, carefully in order to extract value where, where it is. And as you said, the first, I would say, sector or, or part of that universe considers smart contract platforms, which can be considered as the base blockchain, or essentially the scaffolding, the foundation upon which you can then build decentralized applications, right? So smart contract platforms can be most easily uh, compared to IT in general, cloud um, computing. It's really the IT architecture on which you can then build applications, right? So the concept of base uh, blockchain is what we are referring to here. And when it comes to uh, smart contract platforms, there's essentially two ways that you can consider those, um, those systems. It's either, either you consider it as a network or you can now start to look into the cash flows that can be generated from those who actually use those smart contracts by using the native tokens uh, that you need in order to be active on those native uh, base blockchains. And Ethereum fits in this category, just to be clear, right? That is correct. So in general, the network approach to valuing crypto considers that the value of a network 
uh, accelerates as the square of the number of users on that network. All right. So that's the Metcalfe's equation. And in other words, here, the more users you have on that network, well, then naturally the more value that it can represent. Whereas if you look at a cash flow approach, the typical discount to cash flow analysis, here is where you need to introduce the notion that using those smart contract platforms generates fees from the necessity to actually create and destroy uh, those uh, digital tokens. And if you can have sight of those fees, then you can discount them in order to generate a value. So that's, that's the first category, uh, smart contract platforms. So within that, so you're basically, you're, you're describing a DCF, which is a discounted cash flow analysis approach, like, like anybody might do looking at the, you know, forecasting out the cash flows for any business, a regular stock, for example, and then this network approach to it, you know, values it based on, you know, the size of the network, how, how active they are. I guess one of the, one of the issues, I guess, with that, that Metcalf's law is that as you, you know, these tend to do well as they're increasing in, in in um in usage when you have more more users being active on it and i and it's probably not linear as well so you basically have this sort of accelerating up as people are more active and the value of the tokens underlying it are more act are more are more valuable but that also cuts both ways right so i imagine that that's can be quite a volatile sort of trajectory when you're when you're valuing a uh, an entity based on that kind of metric oh oh absolutely in fact it's what we've been observing in our first piece, we were trying to find a way to rationalize the market value of certain crypto assets. And it's probably correct to say right now that the number of users that join a particular network is still highly correlated to the price of that, uh, of that token itself, right? So it tends to be reinforcing, which is why even as you try to measure that network, and in a similar fashion, as you would analyze the value of a company, specific metrics need to be identified and then uh, used, right? So in the world of digital finance, specific metrics that are interesting to consider, and I suppose we will discuss some of those concepts also later on, where they include the total value that is locked on that network, Okay, so if you want to get involved on a particular digital network, you need now to lock some of your tokens in order to take part in the decentralized activity that you want to engage in. All right, so TVL, fees, as we've discussed, to create or destroy tokens are, are another metric that we need to consider. Active addresses, so the number of individual IP addresses that you can identify uh, on the network, but also the number of developers that are developing on, on that network that is particularly crucial. I mean, we all know how social media develops or some like some software develop. You need developers to engage with your ecosystem. And so those new metrics are emerging in order to provide analysts with a way to compare and contrast between those various networks. So let's, let's move on to the second second category here, Olivier, that's um, decentralized platforms like DeFi. What can you tell us about what uh, the report yielded on that study? Right. So decentralized application and the 
wider concept of decentralized finance refers to all those practical application uh, that you can make from those smart contract platforms that we've just discussed. In other words, the base blockchain is then used to create and deploy services that will generate, hopefully, revenue once they are deployed on the uh, blockchain in question. So those services can be numerous. We've looked into trading, betting, asset management. You can actually manage digital assets directly. Credit and lending. This is the, I would say, the rather infamous sector of decentralized finance, which has captured the imagination recently because of essentially over-leveraging position. But the idea here is, is, is precisely to host people's tokens and then lend them away to other people for a fee and for an interest. And so credit and lending activity falls under the category of decentralized finance. Insurance, believe it or not, you can now um, insure specific crypto-related risks. Derivatives activity as well. We had discussed in the first report how, in fact, derivative activity in digital finance now is even more significant, more important in value than spot activity in, uh, in crypto. And uh, we have the concept of decentralized exchanges. So those exchanges are actually truly decentralized as opposed to others who are uh, simply re-centralizing re the exchanges. But you may have heard of Uniswap. That is an example of a, of a decentralized exchange which does not require or rather requires that you exchange your tokens for other tokens as opposed to introducing spot fiat currencies into the, into the mix. So when it comes to decentralized finance... What we have found is this is probably the one that is that lends itself most directly to using traditional financial models to value uh, these usages. You can use comparable analysis, which any equity analyst would be very familiar with, to uh, value decentralized finance applications using metrics like price to assets, price to fees, or even price to total value locked that we've discussed earlier in this discussion. You can also use, in this case, intrinsic valuation through discount cash flows, like we've mentioned. When, and this is the, the trick, there needs to be those cash flows in the first place, right? So fees need to be recognizable and sufficiently uh, stable so that they can be turned into a cash flow that you can then discount uh, over time. So the interesting aspect with decentralized finance is that when you come to think of it, this is the closest to traditional application of financial services, right? So these flows, they serve uh, a commercial purpose in rendering a service in exchange for a payment. Well, this, these transactions and these flows can be measured and discounted it to a value or compared to other services using comparable analysis in order to determine if one is more or less cheap as compared to the other. When you come to think of it, decentralized finance is probably where most of the, I would say, commercial interest behind digital, digital finance will be developed over time, I would say. 
That's interesting. Before we get to, to the Bitcoin valuations, I, I just want to circle back on something that you touched on earlier with the with the Metcalf's law and the kind of the self-fulfilling sort of elements of this. Because one of the things I keep coming away with, even after you know great conversations with folks on this show, is that while, while some of the players in this crypto economy actually produce these cash flows, those cash flows and business models rely on the continued promotion, momentum, price appreciation of the underlying tokens. So if you can't establish a basis for why those tokens rise in price other than call it promotion and belief, isn't the whole value proposition just circular in some way? Isn't the whole ecosystem always going to be vulnerable to periods like we've had over the last year? Well, for now, you're probably correct. Okay, there is an element of circularity in the manner in which crypto is developing. Now, what I found interesting during 2022, the so-called crypto winter, is that it would have been easy in 2022 to discount digital finance, discount Bitcoin and Ethereum at a time when most commentators and institutional investors were losing faith in this sector because, quite frankly uh, and correctly, due to scandals like FTX or Celsius, right? Celsius in the world of decentralized finance and FTX in the world of exchanges. But both these examples and others were demonstrating a lack of maturity of the sector and a need for that sector to institutionalize, okay? And by institutionalizing, what we mean at CFA Institute is probably to reinstate some of the natural protections that clients should be expected, should be in, able to expect from their service provider, protection for the client money, the safekeeping of that money, due regard for the potential conflicts of interest that may arise from those activities. It is probably still a fact that uh, in the world of crypto, some exchanges still concentrate a number of activities that would be perceived to be in conflict with each other. But the sector itself has been resilient. As you've said in your introduction, the price of crypto, of Bitcoin and Ethereum has been rising steadily over 2023. And we are seeing a renewed interest on the part of institutional investors for the sector, probably not or probably in relation with the technological development that we are seeing on the custody front. So the technology itself will gradually allow for a better identification of who owns what, where, and under what condition um, are these tokens kept secure, for example. Now, going back to your actual point of circularity, I think it will take a little bit more time to see the emergence of real and stable economic usages for digital finance. It is probably also true that a part of digital finance that we see a lot of interest for is the tokenization uh, of real-world assets and of financial assets, which may develop into granting people better access to a wider variety of financial assets and financial services. If blockchain and digital ledger technology renders this tokenization possible, and generates enough interest on the part of investors to engage, then this is when you will see a natural interest developing beyond 
the circular nature of fees generated simply from exchanging one token for another on different blockchain. There will need to be the emergence of real economic applications and financial applications through investments for the circularity to subside. So by, by that tokenization of, of other assets, do you mean, what's an example, I'm tr trying to think of an example of that, would that be like shares of a company would, would then be basically replicated in a, in a token form or, or what do you mean by that? So first of all, yes, you're correct. You can probably digitalize ownership of companies. You can also tokenize shares in mutual funds, for example. Okay. You can also tokenize ownership of real world assets, pieces of art. We've seen this NFTs, although that one uh, looks probably a little dodgier than, than we would, than we would, we would, we would hope. An area that we are exploring is whether you can digitalize access to assets that are currently not available uh, for sale widely to um, retail investors, including private assets, for example. Now, this will generate other forms of questions, which is that if you can democratize access to closed and private assets, the question is, should you? But the technology will make it possible to partition private assets into smaller parts that can sit in an pure integrated and fashion on a blockchain. Uh, so the security of your ownership will be guaranteed by the blockchain. If that materializes, I would say this would be a pretty compelling argument in favor of the sector developing and the interest for those tokens to be justified beyond, as we said, merely exchanging tokens with other people's wallets. Okay, so we've covered Ethereum and other smart contract companies. We touched on decentralized finance, and we left the biggest and maybe most controversial for last, Bitcoin. The report outlines four ways of valuing Bitcoin, but the caveat that you really need to use two or more of them to validate the methodology. And that speaks to the difficulty folks have in identifying what drives the price of Bitcoin. So that's a big task. How, how did the authors tackle this? So Bitcoin is a is a world in, in and of itself. It's still the most talked about crypto out, cryptocurrency out there. However, in terms of volume, it is not necessarily the token that is most exchanged, right? Ethereum concentrates more volume overall than uh, than Bitcoin. The, the problem with Bitcoin is that it has probably developed beyond what its creators had in mind when they created Bitcoin. Okay, so what they, they wanted, the so-called uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, was essentially uh, another form of means of exchange that would uh, not need the intermediation of financial institution. Now, when you consider the three characteristics of money, means of exchange is just one of the three. Okay? The other one would be a unit of account and a store of value. Uh, on those two accounts, it's probably difficult to qualify Bitcoin as currency. So at the moment, it is probably fair to say that Bitcoin is a pretty speculative asset. Nonetheless, as you said, it is possible to measure the value of Bitcoin, depending on a series of different methods, including comparing Bitcoin to other markets, 
like supply of money, the so-called uh, N2 money quantity out there, central bank reserve assets. You can also compare uh, Bitcoin to reserve assets. And then there's a you can appreciate according to a level of penetration in each of those markets. You can then determine the value of Bitcoin as a percentage of how much you think it can capture of that addressable, comparable market. You can also use, again, the Metcalfe's law for network. Another method that has been used a lot because it probably could be perceived as a floor value for Bitcoin would be the cost of production. So to mine Bitcoin requires nowadays extensive IT capacity, which in turn require a great deal of access to energy sources. And you can calculate the cost of mining a single Bitcoin at any point in time. It's a bit like comparing the market value of a company to its accounting value, its book value, for example. Yeah, replacement value. Yeah, exactly. There's other methods that work value to transaction ratio. So you can use the volume of transactions to determine the value for cryptocurrencies and a series of other methods like market value to realized value, considered realized value based on cost. So this is about how much it costs to create those new Bitcoin units. So it is fair to say that Bitcoin will probably continue to be a uh, speculative asset for a um, for a while until it stabilizes. It might stabilize along with the rest of digital finance uh, as those decentralized applications develop. One thing to keep in mind is that the current news cycle on Bitcoin is quite um, exciting and quite interesting. The SEC is still uh, battling with the industry whether or not to approve the first uh, set of spot Bitcoin ETFs, exchange-traded funds. It has had to review its position on the matter. And if it does approve spot Bitcoin ETFs, it is quite possible that this may have an impact on the price of Bitcoin. We should not underestimate how the seal of a SEC approval on an ETF may have as a result the effect of convincing a series of institutional investors to penetrate and invest the sector. That is something to keep in mind and keep a close eye on. Great. Well, uh, that th thanks for that, Olivier. I encourage our listeners to go check out the report itself. It's called Valuation of Crypto Assets, a Guide for Investment Professionals. And it's, uh, it, it does a great job of going into the sort of some of the pros and cons of the different methodologies for, for valuing Bitcoin, including yeah, some of the downfalls of, uh, of, uh, of using them in, in isolation. So it's, a, there's a good discussion in there as well to sort of round out the sort of the understanding of that part of it. So I, in the interest of time here, Olivier, we're going to, we're going to guide you to your, our last question for today. And that's what was your first job in the industry? And if you could go back and take yourself for coffee on your first day. What key piece of advice would you offer yourself? Uh, my first job um, in the industry was to be a fund-to-fund -fund analyst at investment manager Netixis in, um, in Paris. And if I could give myself any advice is not to necessarily put too much value on what I think the future has in store for me. Life has its ways, uh, career has its ways, 
And mine has certainly taken me and through a variety of paths that I had not necessarily considered when I got in finance. Keep an open mind. Keep an open mind, absolutely. I've been speaking today with Olivier Fines, Head of Advocacy and Capital Markets Policy Research for EMEA at CFA Institute. Thanks so much for coming on the show today, Olivier. It was my pleasure. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and this is me, Guiding Assets. <laughs> <laughs>